Hi and hello, watch fans. We're back in Dresden with me, your host, Rob Nutz. And on the other end of the line is our friend from Amsterdam, Alon Ben-Joseph. How are you today, Alon? Hi, Rob. Good to hear you. Thank you so much for inviting me back. Uh, I had fun at our first session, so excited to be here. Yeah, it's great to talk to you again so soon. And uh, we we thought it was a good thing to get back on the line to discuss a couple of issues that are still outstanding from our most recent collaborations. We just, we talk too much, right? We just go off on a tangent and that's the end of it. That's the problem. That's the problem. We're true chatterboxes. We really are. We need to, uh, we need to stop podcasting and just uh, go sit down and have a coffee somewhere and just talk this out. But in the meantime, let us dive straight into an issue that Alan knows a great deal about, given the fact that he is a prominent retailer in Amsterdam and a prominent figure in retail online. I want to know from the horse's mouth exactly what Alan feels the current role of the retailer is and what the future of retailers will be. Thank you so much for that intro. Prominent, I don't know. Passionate, for sure. I love retail. I love uh, watches, jewelry. So I'm very honored and proud to do what I'm doing. The question I get asked often is why I'm in retail because I have a diverse background. I also have two tech startups. I love technology as well. So um, I do different entrepreneurial things. And the first and foremost, and actually only reason why I'm in retail is because I love people. I love connecting with people. I like that every day is different. And I love obviously watches. So for me, being a jeweler is a dream come true. And it's, it's not work. It's a hobby. It sounds very cliche, uh, but that's what it is. Well, it does um, certainly come across like that when, uh, whenever I've worked with you in a professional capacity or, or been at your store and, and witnessed not just the way that you, but also the ACE team interact with, with customers. It's a, it's a nice atmosphere. It's certainly not pushy. It is like an exchange of ideas more than anything. And it's in your blood, right? I mean, your, your father is uh, to thank for ACE. Yeah. My, our dad founded it in Amsterdam back in 1975, and he's a master diamond cutter, polisher, goldsmith, but he always loved watches. So although we started with designing, manufacturing our own jewelry, he started adding watches in the early 80s. And my actually first watches, even I couldn't even read time, were a swatch in 83 and G-Shocks. And that's where also the passion for innovation got fed by our dad. And why did I start off with this intro about the future of retail? Because what I think that 99% in retail, people in retail and companies forget, any business, people's business, but retail is about people. I don't talk about numbers or classify our consumers like numbers and big data. Every person is a unique person and has unique uh, wishes and needs. And that's something that we never get. And, And our golden rule is always treat a visitor, a customer, somebody who connects with you like you want to be treated yourself. So with that philosophy in place, we want to have fun. And all our team members and my colleagues are passionate and they're fun-loving people. So that's something that I think that um, makes my fun work, uh, my work fun, sorry. And we pioneered back in 2007. We've been online since 1998 because I love tech and internet. 
So I was responsible for that when I was 17 for our family business. Always worked part-time while I was in uni studying. And in 2007, I really, really wanted to do e-com. But since we're multi-brand authorized dealers, we're independent, family-owned, family-run, we were just brick and mortar back in the day. I really, really wanted to sell online. So we started Ace Online, did it professionally, built a hardcore website, took us almost nine months, um, truly giving birth to a beautiful baby. And we went online and the brands weren't happy. But then things started changing. And this is kudos to my friend, Georges Kern, back in the day, CEO IWC. Very innovative. He's also a pioneer, loves watches and a good CEO. Today, he's at Breitling. He came to me and he said, listen, you blew us out of the water. We've been working behind the scenes to do something online already for two years. I want to go online with you. So he actually honored us with the first online dealership for IWC ever. Being Interesting. Being part of the Richemont group, soon all the other brands that we were retailing from Richemont followed. Then Breitling followed, Swatch Group followed, uh, the brands that we retail from that group, LVMH brands. And that made us, for a small time play that we are, Amsterdam is small, the Netherlands is small, and we are small, which we're proud of, by the way, because we don't want to be a multiple or a chain business. That's something we are adamant not to be. And that's how we turned into a omni-channel retailer, as they call it in professional terms, which didn't exist back in the day, that term. What was the key ingredient of our success online? Because we've been very successful from the start, off the bat, um, because we put a dedicated team on it. We don't outsource anything. We do everything in-house. We have a dedicated team of actual jewelers, um, watch and jewelry enthusiasts themselves. And we created our own content. In the beginning, we didn't have our own Ace Photo Studio. Later on, all the photos you see on our social media, on our website, besides the soldier shots provided by the brands, which we use for uniformity of the layout of the website, are shot in-house. We try to write all the Ace Online magazines ourselves, create a lot of content. We were very innovative. We were the first AD, authorized dealer, to advertise on Fratello Watches, actually, which I'm very proud of. Yeah, thank you very uh, much. Arjun and I go way back. We're the first authorized dealer to ever sell on Chrono24. You can ask Tim that, one of the founders of Chrono24. And again, now it seems logical. But back in the day, the brands reprimanded us. They told us to go offline. So Yeah, that is interesting. Off. Yeah. Because nowadays, of course, online uh, retail is pretty pretty commonplace for many, many brands themselves as well. But why why were they so against a retailer whom they trust in a brick-and-mortar sense, being online as well. What was it that they felt so threatened by? It was such a paradigm shift. If for those that have been around long enough, pre-2007, early 2000s, even the 90s, everything had to be chic, black backgrounds. Everything had to be flash. Probably the youngsters listening now to podcasts don't even know what flash is, right? That technology <laughs> to do moving uh, images on websites. We broke the mold. We did white backgrounds, HTML, beautiful pictures. We were very early with social media, online bannering. We went full board with our friend Ernie on what you seek. We did online marketing. They didn't get that. They to display pricing with watches, that was not heard of. 
Back in the day, if you went to a retailer to get a catalog, either you had to pay it or you had to beg them to get a catalog. Only later on, they added a loose leaflet with recommended retail pricing. So, so for us to do a wide website, no flash, list RRPs, and to add a buy button wasn't hurt. <laughs> scandalous. It sounds scandalous. It was. Um, I mean, it was it's... frowned upon. You don't know how many bad letters I got. But then things started changing. But the most important thing is, and that's what the brands didn't understand back in the day, and often brands still today don't get it. You exist for one reason only. is because consumers let you exist. Mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. never forget that ace, that we live because consumers trust us because they favored us and give them our business. And we're grateful for every sale. I don't care if it's 10 euros, 1,000 euros, 100,000, 1 million. Every customer is important to us. And we live just because of them and we live for them. And our success, and that was what I was saying, is we build our own ACE concierge team. We didn't outsource anything. If you contacted us, it was our own team replying to you. We were the first to do... All live live chat on the website. And then we moved to WhatsApp, WeChat. Uh, we were the first AD to accept Bitcoin. That was also frowned upon. Yeah, I mean, that's that's still yet to become mainstream. But it's uh, it's that personal presence that you maintained all the way through the establishment of uh, an online sales portal that I think made the difference and eventually convinced brands that this was a kind of future that they would have to be part of and should embrace rather than reject. I think the initial fear was that brands, on one hand, thought that it was not a luxury experience and that that was what the retailers were primarily providing for those brands. But perhaps also in a slightly darker uh, sense, they just didn't see why they should allow you to sell watches online directly to a consumer when they could just as easily do the same thing and not have to pay any kind of margin. And I think that because of the service, the customer service you provide and the reputational boost that you provide a brand in the same way that a brand provides it to retailers is something that really can't be underestimated. And I think maybe sometimes brands are guilty of underestimating how important that is. For years now, we've been talking about the death of the retailer and how online is going to completely consume brick and mortar stores. And this is the uh, the last days of being able to walk into an authorized dealer. But I certainly don't believe that that end is actually as near as people make it sound when they talk about it. And how do you feel about that? Do you think so that it's generational? I, I have a clear cut vision about that. And I wanted to add just a little comment to the last thing. So why I think our e-com strategy is very successful. We took one simple hypothesis, which was how can we translate what we do now, which was brick and mortar, to digital. And that was our passion, our knowledge, and friendliness. So we translated that to the website. We put our team members on the homepage. When you reached out to us, we answered within four hours. Um, and we always aim to answer within 24 hours because we operate seven days a week and already for 15, 20 years already. So that was the success. And now to answer your new question about the future of retail and the death of the retailer, I think we very much need to make segments in the term retail, right? Travel agents are a different world. Fashion now are getting hit very hard. Food is a different story. Let's, But for the sake of staying on topic, watch retail is considered luxury retail. In the watch retail, luxury is per definition emotion. I write columns. The, my most recent column is about the most precious luxury we have is time. 
And then I linked it back to watches again, because that's the uh, embodiment of time. So we sell emotions. In the red thread in the Ace This Live shows that we do is when I ask somebody, what's your favorite watch and why? It's always the story behind it and the emotions that it replicates and brings back. We don't sell necessities. If you look at the pyramid of Maslow, we're not in the in the first three, four brackets of his pyramid of needs, right? Right. So right. it's utter nonsense. We sell something <laughs> that's obsolete, but it brings so much joy that it needs to be the cornerstone of retail. So in general, it's experience marketing. You need to experience it. For example, me myself been born in this industry, loving watches for almost 40 years, buying, collecting, selling them. I fell into this own pit that was dug by brands that they say, oh, we don't need to physically show you collections anymore. You can order them online. For example, and I told this to Julien Tourner, the CEO of Zenit, when they launched the shadow version of the A384, the revival issue, I yeah, thought yeah. it was black DLC. But when I got it in stock and I ordered it from an image, it was actually very heavily uh, satinated titanium, which I love. So even me that is so experienced, both in retail and watch collecting as a consumer, I needed to experience it in real life. Not a render, not a 3D model, not a video, not a picture. I remember you telling me about that at the time and how much of a revelation it was for you in a way, not not the realization that that was necessary, but the proof, the living proof that what you'd been saying all this time was actually true. But okay, that's a little insulated uh, case. Why I believe that luxury retailers have a right to exist is experience. So I always say our boutique has to be a candy store for adults. When you step in, you need to be wooed and wowed by excitement. You need to feel at home. Um, If retail doesn't pivot to being a place you want to dwell, right, to hang out, you don't do the necessary correctness. And then if we zoom in to the fact of mono brands versus multi-brand. Mm-hmm. That's a big discussion, right? Because that's a channel conflict. And the majority of multi-brands simply don't survive because they're being pressed out by their own suppliers, the brands themselves, because they shut you down. Obviously, a lot of retailers don't evolve and they have a natural debt. That's sad, but that's evolution. And we need to differentiate between the, these two. But If we state a hypothesis, do multi-brand retailers in the luxury segment still have a right to exist? Hell yes. Why? For the simple fact, you always want to compare, right? Yeah, and you need that impartiality as well. You want to compare. You want to compare brands. You want to compare. uh, You want objective advice and not a tunnel vision from a brand. And you even see a revival in the car industry. The car industry is ahead of us. They already 20, 30 years have mono-brand networks. And you Mm -hmm. see a revival that lease companies pivoted, they needed to innovate, and they suddenly became multi-brand car dealers for pre-owned and new. And I think that's a flash to the future for the watch industry that I don't think will perish because people want to compare. So taking that into consideration, I'm not worried at all. Taking internet into consideration to making retail obsolete, because that was your original question, 
in the luxury industry? I don't think so. In Dutch, we have a saying that we say, uh, oude wijn in nieuwe zakken, which transliterates to old wine in new bags. Um, and you probably <laughs> have a beautiful English saying for that that I'm not aware of right now. Yeah, I don't um, think it's uh, appropriate for radio, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and exactly, look at podcasts. They revived all of radio again. But um, what I want, to, what do I mean by that saying is, It's retail. It's 360 degrees. It's just a new way. But people want to connect with people. People want to hang out with people. If there is a distance, e-com can close that gap. We have grown from a local hero into a global player because of e-com. We had always an international footprint because Amsterdam is a very touristic town. So we had a huge influx of tourists. We have loads of expats. So when they went back home, they would keep ordering from us. So we did catalog business and phone orders. We have a humongous following abroad due to e-com. So we have a lot of customers that want to visit Ace uh, Amsterdam because of Ace. But but it's just a means, right? I mean, Instagram is a hype and, and there are sales going through Instagram. So it the market evolves. But in the core of things, people want to meet. So we rebuilt our boutiques into more of a living room setting, more relaxed, but still luxurious. Somebody who really understands that, again, is George Kern. Look what they did with Breitling, right? He yeah, 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 yeah. He casualized luxury, and his reasoning to do so is because he says, I envision that the millennials don't want stiff, mahogany, outfitted boutiques anymore, which... Yeah. I agree with. I still wear suits with a tie because I love suits and ties, but mm-hmm. I don't oblige our team members to do so. We want people to emphasize on their own unique style, and and luxury is a feeling, right? Yeah, of course. It's a state of mind. Yeah. Oh, you took the words right out of my mouth. I was gonna, I was gonna uh, go down this route myself. I, I was gonna ask if you think that the uh, the slightly staid and stuffy and formal and intimidating atmosphere of uh, luxury retailers of old is is completely out the door and this new cozy welcoming relaxed environment um where people like you say hang out they don't go there to make a purchase they go there to maybe discuss and maybe to share feelings and ideas and educate themselves on a product and then eventually will purchase it just yeah as it happens it's available yeah. there is the future you're right yeah. brightling you've yeah. done it you've done it we've talked about whether this will become the norm and it is largely down to this generation this this younger consumer uh doesn't seem to be as comfortable with not not just comfortable with walking into a luxury boutique but um they have no desire to be part of that environment despite the fact they may well want to buy a luxury product strangely somewhat contradictorily they don't want to be treated in that luxury fashion in the same way yeah um it's very strange so so to maybe analyze a case study And I'll end it with a very bold statement and we'll see in 10, 20 years, people will listen back to this podcast and say, Alon was a douchebag and an idiot, or he was <laughs> completely right. So I want to do a shout out to Adamar Piquet. Hi, uh, AP. AP. <laughs> You've been AP, mentioned. Amazing though. brand, family owned, independent. Benyama is also a great CEO. Um, I think they did a good move on Because they did it before Breitling did, and they took it up a notch, which is amazing. They made AP houses, townhouses, not on the high street, on street level, but even a floor up, hidden 
and not per se always in the best streets, which are considered AAA streets, they create AP houses. So that's amazing and that's kudos to them. But I have a big point of criticism and obviously I have tunnel vision. I am a retailer, but not an AP retailer, but they're shut down the whole network or shutting down the whole network. They announced SIHH last year that they're going to close all multi-brand stores and they're going to the the Louis Vuitton model, which is utterly and vertically uh, integration. So that means from uh, manufacturing to retail is controlled by them. That's a strong statement. It's a big, uh, it's a big move. That's their statement, okay? And they're yep. doing it because all ADs are being closed down right now. Mm-hmm. Ecom, they still don't do. They're basically three high, high-end brands that don't do ecom. Patek, Rolex, and AP. But AP is, is slowly gearing there. And obviously, they'll do it as soon as all multi-brand is closed down. But I think they'll come back from it. In the end, I believe they'll be shooting themselves in their own foots by not having consumers the ability, brand new watches, I'm not talking about pre-owned, to compare in a multi-brand environment. Today, they think they're uh, invincible. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I see. Invincibility is just the first step before you're down. Take another example. I don't know if you remember, everybody thinks that Patek and, and Rolex always had waiting lists. That's not true. It's ebb and flows, up and down. In the early 90s, Patek and Rolex hardly advertised because they said we don't need it anymore. So they weren't visible anymore. And they weren't on top of mind anymore. And their sales went down. And they picked it up again. I think it's the same analogy for retail and boutiques. That as soon as you verticalized everything, you oblige people to register to come to an AP house. And you're going to strip them of all their credentials and data for big data mining and CRM and blah, blah, blah. There are consumers who don't want that. And yeah. they oblige you to tell them if you already have an AP and what AP you had and blah, 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 blah. And again, luxury is a state of mind. Privacy is the second most important luxury we have. And that's a whole different podcast and not maybe not for Fratello that I'm super scared of what's happening in the digital world and the Facebooks of this world. But that's a different discussion. And just to do a bit of self-promotion, within ACE, you want to come in anonymously and buy anonymously, good for you. We respect that. No problem. We don't hardcore data mine you and, and profile you and whatever. You understand? And, and I think that's a huge danger. So that's my bold statement. And let's catch up in a decade or two decades and we'll see if I was right or utterly wrong. I think it's interesting that they're stepping away from the model entirely, um, not because it doesn't make sense, a kind of sense with their current strategy and what they foresee the future to be, but because you miss out on so much organic advertisement. When I worked for Namos, I think you remember me uh, telling you this at the time, we like to uh, focus on being stocked in luxury boutiques that had a certain brand portfolio. Yeah. Obviously, Rolex was very near the top of uh, preferential brands to be positioned next to or near. Now, you know a lot about Rolex dealerships and you know that for any small brand trying to commandeer even one foot of display space in a Rolex stocking store is is basically impossible because that one foot of space could be used to um, house yet another empty Rolex display case that could theoretically possess a professional model at some point. And it's, it's worth far more to a dealer to be out of stock of another Rolex than it is to have 30 new models from an up-and-coming brand in its place. But the advantage 
of uh, being close to brands like Rolex or Omega or Cartier or JLC is that you are, as a new brand, as a young brand, or even as an established brand that other people may not have heard of, you are commercially proofed, as I always said. It's like validation. So people walk past um, a boutique window, a multi-brand boutique, and they see Omega in the window and they see Cartier in this. And then next to them, they see Jean Richard, which I noticed. I- I'm saying this because it's literally the case on the uh, Market Street Ernest Jones uh, shop window in Manchester. Uh, St. Anne Square, sorry, not Market Street. And uh, you suddenly sort of see this brand that maybe you didn't associate with other brands prior to seeing it in this shop window, and it elevates it in your mind. And AP although it's right near the top of the tree, still needs to be in people's minds. It still needs to be um, on the high street. It still needs to be accessible to an, an aspirational audience, if nothing nothing else. Where's the next generation of AP purchases? Okay, I'm not saying that people are going to walk into a multi-brand boutique and buy a, a armfuls of AP watches just because they're there, but that certainly will impress upon them the status of the brand and what kind of models there are available, and it builds it over time in their heads and increases, I think, the desire for that kind of product. You squirrel it all away in the corner of, I'm sure, a very lovely but very exclusive AP house on some back street in a major city uh, around the globe, and you're going to lose so much of that traffic. You're going to lose so much of that exposure, and uh, you will, I think, sell to an ever-decreasing luxury audience and perhaps it moves the product in the end if they don't come back to the retail uh, model that they've just exited. Perhaps it changes what they produce. Perhaps they focus only on the super high complicated 250,000, 500,000, 1 million euro uh, concept models and just sell directly to that niche customer base because without that exposure, I think they're going to struggle. Yeah, so you concur with my... I concur. Yeah. I, concur. I don't know if I concur that they will come back um, I like I say, it may it may lead to an evolution of a brand out of necessity and the products that they offer, uh, and an elevation of a price point, so they aren't forced to walk back um, the decision they've made. But we'll see, we'll see. I don't think I don't think that it's a model that um, will yield success with the current catalog. So I have a whole another case study that I would like to discuss, but we're already chatting like for half an hour and we are chatterboxes so we can continue for hours to philosophize about that. Do you want me to go into that or should we keep it for another time? I would say let's touch upon it if it's relevant because this is this is a deeply complex issue and we couldn't hope to get through everything in 30 minutes or 60 minutes. Yeah. But well, let's touch on it while it's in our minds. We, I have two more cases because I want to touch up on Patek and Rolex which okay. are up there together with AP, but have a total different strategy, 180 degrees the other side. Um, and I want to talk about, obviously, um, the media guys like Fratello that became retailers. And uh-huh. we already see a second, third wave in that evolution, but maybe that's a different podcast then for that matter, because we, the list. we're exploring possibilities, how to push the envelope of... Uh, working together. I truly believe in the network economy, which is a term in the tech world. Um, So I do believe in that and partnerships and collabs and everything, but that's a different discussion. Just what I wanted to say briefly, we recently became Tudor dealers after nagging their heads off for more than 13 years and asking for the Rolex dealership 
for over 40 years. Um, super humbled, super proud. But I had an issue. When they came on board, they said, Alon, by the way, you can't sell them online. I'm like, what? I said, everything we sell in our boutiques, we sell online. No, actually, they didn't tell us you can't. They said, we prefer you not to. And they're super elegant. And they That's don't tell you to, what to do. That's an image there is, but they're amazing to work with. So they requested me kindly. I said, sure, we're friends. We're new friends. I want a long-term partnership and I respect my partners. But may I ask why? And then they explained their philosophy. They said, mm -hmm. we believe that our products need explanation, storytelling, to share the passion embodiment which we do and have when we produce, design, and manufacture our products. So I said, okay, good analogy, good philosophy. And we want people to buy physically. We sell old school products. It's an old school style. And we believe in retail. Exclamation point. And we are not retailers. We don't want to be retailers. We have no ambition to become retailers. And we want every consumer to have the best possible explanation of our products and the passion shared by the best retailers in the world. And that's why we picked you. So wow, what's an answer? What, I mean, so what can you say? After <laughs> what explaining you that you're humbled, you're proud, but then there is no counter argument. They do let us display all the products on the website. We can list the pricing, which Rolex was one of the last to do so, but Patek still doesn't list their pricing on their website. So they're the last of the Mohicans. So with that feedback, they said, listen, do your online marketing. We believe in online marketing. Very important. Lead generate. Let them come to you. Let them call you. But we don't prefer a buy button because it's very unpersonal. And then I said, you know what? They're absolutely right. Because when I started with Ecom, I said it has to be the most personal that we can. It needs to be the most personal service that we can deliver. So we honored their request. And you know what? It works. Really? Yeah. I, I, I didn't believe it. I, I, was, I was a bit stubborn. I'm like, yeah, whatever, and this and that. But it works. And ever since I've been analyzing it, studying it, asking our consumers, do you mind? It's no problem at all. And then final thing that I want to share is two people that I very much respect, look up to, and uh, see as industry leaders are Michael Tay of The Hourglass, personal friend. It's the CEO of The Hourglass in Singapore one of the biggest retailers in the world, and uh -huh. Stern, the owner, CEO of Patek Philippe, which I don't personally know. They had a sit-down, recorded an amazing video during the exhibition they did last year in Singapore for Patek. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I recommend everybody to look up that video. Besides, that's beautifully shot, and it's an amazing video because Stern is an amazing guy, very humble, very friendly. And Michael is very knowledgeable and a huge watch collector. I recommend following him on Instagram. Amazing collections, personal collections he has, and true passionate about watches, and his dad as well. Um, I'm mentioning this video for one snippet that actually is on the same philosophy as Rolex. And, and people compare Patek and Rolex. But... That confirmed my theory why these two brands are the best watch brands out there because so they don't adhere or need to listen to anybody but themselves. They don't care about stock exchange rates and quarterly numbers. They have a long-term philosophy. So even in downtimes like now, they stick the course 
and navigate these wild oceans and don't um, get distracted and they keep investing and they do not want to be retailers both of them they believe in multi-brand they believe in retailers they believe in physical and they believe in people so he said that in the video so michael asked him this question and he said why don't you i, I don't ex remember exactly so i'm not paraphrasing but he asked why don't you have boutiques or why don't you do e-com he says we have the best retailers in the world and we can never substitute that we don't want to be retailers if obviously in 20 years there are no retailers anymore he says i'll be forced to reconsider this strategy but i really really hope so that i don't need to and that says it all and i'm trying to mention this to come back full circle to your initial question and the reason why we're doing this podcast the future by retail it's full circle i don't think it will go away because in the end, people always will want to meet up. And you know what the funny thing is? I think the more our society digitizes, the bigger the need will be to meet up, to be together, to go to stores. It has to be fun, right? Shopping is all about fun. It's not about necessity, especially in the luxury industry. So I'm definitely not worried. Um, I do have one little worry, and then I'm going to shut up is if we don't all invest more in educating the newest generations to read time analogly, so round. If two, three years ago, I wrote a column that time is not round anymore. What do I mean <laughs> by that? Digital is vertical, right? Right, and right, right. Analog right. time is round. Um, I was shocked by a study done in the UK that an X percentage of kids don't know how to read clocks anymore round clocks analog clocks. is that true is that genuinely so true a lot of schools took down wall clocks that are analog because the students got stressed out by the fact that they didn't know how much time they had left oh, on wow. their exam because they are not allowed to use their mobile phones so and, and no smart watches so if they don't have the digital time with them they didn't know what time it was on an analog clock they saw the hours passing, the minutes passing, because they see a moving hand, but they know. And at first, I thought it was idiotic, right? Yeah, I thought it was yeah. a joke or something. But then I'm I, still there. I did a deep dive on that, and apparently, it's becoming worse and worse. And they're not educating kids. You want to know what the first thing I asked my son's kindergarten teacher, which he started three weeks ago in kindergarten. He's four years old. I said, "How do you guys teach time?" So I got worried. So I'm doing a shout out to all these big watchmakers. Produce wall clocks with and without your logo, whatever. Produce a billion. Produce a seven billion. Donate them to schools and teach them. I'm, I'm part of a jewelers club here in the Netherlands. I suggested that we as jewelers go give a guest lecture to kindergarten, yes? And, and elementary maybe, uh, Just to talk about that. time and educate time. Because if we don't do this, in 20 years' times, wristwatches could become obsolete like pocket watches. Well, and I think that's cool. a bigger worry for retail than e-com and brands opening their own stores. You know, that is now an I'm interesting angle up. to take on it. That really is an interesting approach. Um, it's not an angle that we've really talked about. Not so much the future of retail or the relevance of mechanical watchmaking in society, but the future of mechanical watchmaking through the context of the next generation's apparent inability to tell the time. That's rarely addressed. Maybe you should start hosting uh, um, parent and child crash events 
Maybe. in uh, in the jewelers just to bring kids along uh, in I, that I, environment early. I invited every elementary school around our boutiques, high schools to come, internships to share the Panachal knowledge. Um, we have actually a lot of high school kids that need to do a work experience for five days, right? Okay, okay. I give them that platform. The majority wants to work in the e-com division. I force them to come to retail because I say it's the same. Without the physical retail, there is no e-com in our business, especially within mm-hmm. Ace. But I mm-hmm. believe also in the watch business, and 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 I give gift guest lectures mostly so at unis and and colleges. But whatever school invites me, I'll go. Uh, but I, I think that that's a big worry. And actually, this is a shout out, or uh, I'm compelling you, Rob, and the whole team, or one of your journalists and editors. I want you guys to do this research and write an article about it. Because well, it, yeah. it is a big worry, but I'm not worried for the next two decades. And I think that's the big success of Nomos. The millennials are getting turned off by smartwatches. That's another column I wrote because there is no passion there. It's not sustainable. It's a throwaway culture, right? Three years and then you have to throw away your digital watch because nobody can service it anymore. And there is yeah. a new stuff. And people are going back to less is more. And I think that's one of the biggest successes of Nomos. Uh, yeah, I and agree. Daniel Wellington, for that matter. Yeah, Daniel Wellington is a phenomenal success story. Exactly. Um, and it's because of that. So millennials were safe. Generation Z, I see them coming up, visiting our stores. We actually have uh, one of the youngest watch collectors in the Netherlands, a girl. She's 15. This is a shout out to Yapka. So she, she's a totally into watches. So there is hope. But we, <laughs> as an industry have a big task at hand. If we behave like ostriches and stick our heads into the sand and think the storm will blow over, it won't. And that's the reason we started the Ace List Live is to share knowledge and passion. And I think that's why Fratello is so successful because you try to give objective, maybe sometimes critical, journalistic knowledge and news about the watches. And kudos to you guys. Thank you. We do our best and uh, we have another project to add to the list now. You've uh, uncovered that terrifying situation. Um, I mean, I, I, I struggle to believe it, but um, it certainly sounds like something that does need to be looked into. We'll see if there's some way we can uh, turn it into a, an article and get some proper proper data together. But wow, it's, uh, it's, it's just quite, quite scary actually to think about it. We should. Maybe you should write an open letter to the watch industry. That would be a good start. Yeah. I think, um, you know, there's a couple of brands that already do some pretty good stuff when it comes to time telling, like, you know, Flick Flack, of course, yeah. the little uh, Swatch brand. And, um, I like the way that those watches are accompanied by like graphic instructions with these two characters, the hour hand and the minute hand, and they talk. That's a brilliant idea. But, you know, the responsibility needs to fall on, uh, parents and schools, I guess, to teach analog time and getting that message out is, is, yeah, probably harder than I ever really considered because, you know, the the captive audience we have on Fratello, like watch fans, those those kind of people, those men and women are going to teach their children how to tell the time with an analog clock. It's it's how do we break out of that echo chamber and communicate to a wider audience? Good question. Okay, I will try and uh, try and find some way to amplify the issue. You, know, you, you always leave me with some more work to do. And we've left more things on our list that we have to discuss about. But I think that we should probably wrap up this episode now and uh, pick up our other items from the agenda at a later date. How does that sound to you? 
Sure thing. Would love to. Thank you so much for another fun chat. It was a great pleasure as always. Thank you for sharing your experiences and I hope the Fratelli enjoyed it too. We'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.